And this morning, I was reminded of Jonathan Edwards, the famed preacher of the First Great Awakening. He preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it is said that during this sermon, the people who were hearing it, who were listening, were falling out of their chairs onto their faces while he was preaching, didn't even wait for the invitation, and repenting of their sin and trusting in Christ. And you would think that a man like that would have to be a powerful, dynamic, top of his lungs preacher, right? Someone who really made the word come alive. But it was actually said of Jonathan Edwards that when he would preach, he would have his manuscript fully written out in front of him. He would hold a candle in his hand above the pulpit or the lectern, and he would stoop over it and read it word for word. I'm reminded this morning that the voice of the preacher is not what God needs to be powerful. It is simply His Word that needs to be powerful. And His Word indeed is powerful. So, my voice is a little bit on the weaker side this morning. I do apologize for that. But I am going to preach this morning and pray, praying that God's Word would reign powerful. And if... uh, You just hang tight with me. I'm pushing forward. Push forward with me. All right? Voice a little prayer for me if you don't mind. So this morning, we continue our series, Walking in the Light, in the book of 1 John. We'll be in 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. If you have your copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and open it to there. Kids, our word for the sermon today is the word heart. So you take note, however many times I say the word heart, come find me afterwards and I'll give you a congratulations or a close but not yet. I love John's little letter to Christians that still carries great importance for us today. John wrote in the second chapter, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. John's desire for this letter is to help believers walk in holiness. In his letter, he regularly encourages believers to walk in holiness or walk in the light and to be weary of the sinful ways of the world. Anything that opposes the Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus, is to be rejected by believers. And this this concern for holiness is one that is prevalent throughout the Scriptures. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And again in 1 Peter chapter 1, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So this walking in holiness does not only concern itself with rejecting that which is sinful, but also engaging in and encouraging that which is 
righteous, that which is right. And in the context of 1 John, John is concerned with encouraging and exhorting believers in Christ to love one another. This is the commandment that Jesus gave His disciples in John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Today's passage is a continuation of the theme of loving others from last week's sermon. In case you weren't here, Pastor Kyle preached from chapter 3, verses 10 through 18 of 1 John. And verse 11 highlights the commandment that we have heard since the beginning that we should love one another. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Verse 16, by this we know love that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John gets real practical in verses 17 and 18 when he wrote, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So with those verses in mind, let's read from our passage today. 1 John chapter 3, verses 19-24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment. Verse 23 that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for this time that we have gotten to gather together to worship You, to hear your word. I pray that you would bless this time to your glory, to your honor, to your kingdom's sake. Father, give my voice strength to carry your words, for they are yours, they are not mine. And Lord, help each of us in this room to hear with ears that hear, and to see with eyes that see, and behold the glory of the gospel of Christ. Thank you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. So John penned the words in verse 19, by this we shall know the weir of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. What is this thing that affirms us as being in Christ? What is this, this that this verse is referring to? Well, the answer has been given all over this passage and really all over the book of 1 John. It is the way that believers love one another. Practically speaking, it is the way that we care for other believers utilizing our material possessions. Verse 17. By this we shall know. And we'll explore verses 19 through 24 in four main truths. And here's the first. If you're a note taker, like to take notes. Here's the first. The selfish heart and the God who is greater. 
the selfish heart, and the God who is greater. Verses 19 to 20. John wrote in verse 20, For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. This verse begins to make sense in light of Christian love for one another, especially considering generosity and care for, others, for other believers, which is John's premise, considering verses 17 and 18. It actually upholds God's own generosity towards believers as being the example for Christians, for believers to be generous today. Philippians chapter 4, 19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God, who has given us far more than we deserve and has blessed us far better than we could ever earn, sets the example in Christian generosity in His own and by His own actions. The Father gave up His only Son. The Son laid down His life and the Spirit lives within us. If you were to sit down and list out the ways scripturally that God has been generous towards us, guys, it would overwhelm us. But here's the rub, right? This generosity that God has been so gracious to show us, He has called us to show also to others. God expects us to be generous as well. Hebrews chapter 13, 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Deuteronomy chapter 15, going Old Testament on you, 7 through 8 says, If among you... One of your brothers should become poor if any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. By the way, a lot of commentators, theologians, think that Deuteronomy chapter 15, what I just read, is the backdrop for the verses that are serve as our main text this morning. The trouble with Christian generosity is not that there is no need, nor is it that there is no command from Scripture. Both are there and they are abundant. The trouble with Christian generosity is the heart of the believer who would be tempted and so often does close the door of their own heart towards their fellow believers in Christ who are in desperate need. It says much of our own hearts that we would withhold from fellow believers, people whom we are called to love in the same way that Jesus has loved us, never mind you the fact that if we do this to our own brothers and sisters in Christ, then how much more likely are we to do it towards those we don't love? Y'all, if you don't love the people whom you worship, the living God with every Sunday, week in and week out, then how are you to love the people who do not know Jesus at all? And I'm not talking about 
your family is sitting around you. I'm talking about the folks who are sitting across the room from you. We are called to love one another. And when it comes to material possessions, when it comes to monies and all that good stuff, I know that we've got kids and bills and all that. I know that there are times when money is real tight or perhaps better said it is non-existent. But I want to share with you the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. It says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Our love for one another is on its greatest display when we sacrificially love one another. Not when it's easy to do. Not when it's easy to give. Not when we won't notice. But that when it's hard. When that pressure is felt. And that turmoil is real. And y'all, that might look like you helping a fellow believer financially. But that also might look like you taking the time out of your day to sit down and check on somebody who's struggling. That might look like you taking a teenager under your wing and mentoring them. That may look like you signing up to go on mission trips with our church. That may look like you rocking babies, beautiful little babies, one of them which is mine, in the nursery. That may look like you leading a small group. That may look like you even organizing a prayer chain for our church. It might look like you texting your pastors at the beginning of the day and encouraging them in their own walk with Christ. You may not think you can or give much, but if that poor old widow in the temple during Jesus' time can give all that she has, then I think, and I speak for myself here as well, that we can certainly strive to do and to give more. And where our hearts are tempted to say no, tempted to condemn us, or accuse us might be the better way that word is put, God is greater than our hearts. He has sacrificed much to bring us into His family. He has sacrificed much to bring us the forgiveness of our sins, the hope of eternal life. If the God who created everything can sacrifice for sinners, then certainly we can sacrifice for other believers in Christ. Certainly we can love one another as Jesus has loved us. A final comment before we move on from verse 20. The final phrase presented here is, and he knows everything. This is where the tension lies for us as believers today. This is where the line is pulled taut. This is where the rubber meets the road. When John writes, and he knows everything, it is not hyperbole or it's not superfluous commentary meant to drive home a point. It is real and it points to God's infinite knowledge of everything, everywhere, and at all times. There's not a single square inch in all of creation that God is not intimately familiar with. And that goes doubly so for the people He has called His own. When our hearts are tempted to say no, it should give us some angst and perhaps some gumption 
to remember that our Father calls us to lay down our lives for one another and to give sacrificially, to love one another. God is greater than our hearts. He has set the example for the manner in which we ought to live, and He knows our lives. Paul offers a warning in Galatians chapter 6 that I think runs along the same lines as John here. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. If I could, this is something I, I do with our students, uh, I say fairly regularly, every now and then. I'll take a verse and I'll translate it into the Evan Sheridan version for them. The ESV. Two, not, not, well, I can't say 2.0. But, you know, maybe 0.5, right? If, this is how I would translate verse 20 for us. If my heart has found me guilty of failing to sacrificially love my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, then I should take heed of my life. For God Himself does not withhold sacrificial love for His people and He sees the way that I live. Our next point this morning is the selfless heart and the God who blesses it. The selfless, the selfless, sorry, the selfless heart and the God who blesses it. Verses 21 and 22 of 1 John chapter 3 says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. It is a blessing for us to walk in obedience to the commands of Christ. Believers who have upheld the command to love one another can have the confidence to approach God with their request. Their heart does not accuse them of wrongdoing, their conscience is clean, and isn't it something that the way we act towards fellow believers actually impacts the way, the manner in which we pray? I love, I'm going to nerd out here for a second, I love the word for confidence here in the Greek. It just sounds cool, okay? It's parecia. If I had my full voice, that would sound even cooler. But it means freedom in speaking, unreservedness in speech, perhaps how a wife ought to be to her husband and vice versa. It can also mean free and fearless confidence, cheerful courage, boldness, assurance, perhaps sticking to your guns, Christ is Lord, Caesar is not. And the deportment by which one has become conspicuous or secures publicity. The best way I can put that is think of how politicians politic. This is the confidence that believers who are walking in the light, as John describes it, living righteously, loving God, loving their fellow believers, hating the things opposed to the world and to the will of God, that, uh, the word, not the world, sorry, opposed to the word and the will of God, that believers can have in approaching God in prayer. Y'all, the best way I can think to demonstrate that for us this morning is we have Samuel in a preschool program during the week. Samuel is our two-year-old, if you don't know that. He's almost three. 
We drop him off Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday mornings. We pick him up in the afternoon. And every single time Hannah or I go to pick that kid up, and I'll, and I'll tell it from my perspective, when I pull the van up or the road up to the, the door where they let the kids out, I can see down the hallway all the way to the door of his classroom. And I can hear the teacher, Miss Jenny, say, Samuel, your dad's here. Come on, let's go. And he comes running out that door. He's got his little school bus backpack on. It's got the little cup in the, in the cup department of the backpack. And he comes out the door, and he looks all the way down at the end of the hallway, and he sees me sitting in the vehicle. And from one end of the hallway to the other, the kid is running down in front of God and everybody going, Dad, 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 Dad. With a smile as broad as can be, that little two-year-old comes running to us just as fast as he can. He's in public. He's unashamed. He's coming to his daddy. And that's the boldness, the confidence that we can have when our hearts are unashamed in our heavenly Father's love for us. We can boldly approach our Father in prayer knowing that He will answer our prayers according to His good and perfect, perfect, perfect will for us in Christ. This is the assurance that our faith in Christ brings to us as we seek to walk in obedience to Him. John writes in verse 22, And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. I want to read what Charles Spurgeon wrote about this. He said, If our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God, and whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him. He who has a clear conscience comes to God with confidence, and that confidence of faith ensures to Him the answer of His prayer. Childlike confidence makes us pray as none else can. It makes a man pray for great things, which he would have never have asked for if he had not learned this confidence. and makes him pray for little things which a great many are afraid to ask for because they have not yet felt towards God the confidence of children. The man of obedience is the man whom God will hear because his obedient heart leads him to pray humbly and with submission for he feels it to be his highest desire that the Lord's will should be done. Hence it is that the man, our obedient heart, prays like an oracle. His prayers are prophecies. Is he not one with God? Doth he not desire and ask for exactly what God intends? How can a prayer shot from such a bow ever fail to reach its targets? When we have this confidence born out of obedience, which has been born out of his grace and his love for us, then we need not worry about what our Father thinks of our prayers. The matter of our prayers are aligned with what the Father wishes us to pray for. And y'all, I'm not going to pretend like I understand the fullness of how this works. This is one of those great mysteries of how the Holy Spirit operates within the believer to bring about the Father's will on earth. And we may wish to remember that all of this is predicated on the command at this point in the text to love one another. Now, there is another explicit command for believers to obey, but we'll get there in just a second. I want to make this point first. 
We don't love believers with our material possessions for the result of God giving us more material possessions. We do not tithe to the church in order to receive more money to spend as however we see fit. The confidence before God is the result of obeying His commands and what He gives us more of as we obey is don't miss this, Himself. A more intimate walk and relationship with Him. A deeper understanding and knowledge of Himself. A clearer picture of who He is and how He is at work. And y'all, if I can be blunt here, we as Americans, and I know that wealth is relative to the context in which we live. You want to know more thoughts about that, buy me a cup of coffee someday. But we as Americans, generally speaking, have plenty of money. What we as American believers need more of is not material possessions. It's not more money in the bank. It's not a bigger house. It's not more cars. What we need more of is Christ Himself. And we're not talking about some hidden or deeper level of salvation. What I'm talking about is discipleship and sanctification. I'm talking about your relationship with Jesus after you've been saved. The blessing of obedience to His commands is Himself. And you or I can never, ever, 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 ever have too much of Jesus. John reminds us at the end of verse 22 that as we do what He commands, it pleases the Father. And ought to swell our hearts with unspeakable joy to think that we can actually please God with our actions. What are these things we can do, though, to please God? Let's look at that, our third point. The sinful heart and the God it obeys. The sinful heart and the God it obeys. That's not a word we hear very often, or at least I don't. Sensible being S-E-N-S-E-F-U-L. So think senses and then full. Sinful heart. <clears throat> Verse 23 says, And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Have you ever given thought to what God desires from your life? If, if I've lost you for any reason, then let me invite you back in for just a second, especially if you're not a believer. John lays it out for his readers that God desires, what God desires and how to align our lives with His desires Believe in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Jesus says in John chapter 3 verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Romans 3.23 points out that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 6.23, the first part says, For the wages of sin, what we have earned by our sin, is death. John chapter 5, verse 24 says, uh, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And that final part of Romans 6.23 says, But the free gift of God is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that the God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The very same grave that awaits sinners was visited and utterly obliterated by the Savior. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was killed on behalf of sinners, buried, and after three days, rose again. And Romans 10, verses 9 and 10 says, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In that same passage, verse 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Your first step this morning, if you haven't already, is to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your soul. You are utterly unable to please God without that first step having been taken. You can attend church unrepented and untrusting and still live a life that is unpleasing to the Lord. You can be a comparatively good person to the folks around you. You can care for those who are in need. You can feed the hungry. You can take care of the orphans. And yet, if your faith is not in Christ, then your life is not pleasing to the Lord. Faith in Christ, don't miss this, unlocks the door to a life that pleases God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. <clears throat> Back in our text this morning, the command to believe in Jesus is the first explicit command in verse 23. The second is to love one another. If you are currently wondering what God wants you to do with your life, here it is. I've got it. Believe in Jesus Christ and love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know how I can say it more simply. And now that you've heard it, you've got to respond to it. There is no neutral ground when it comes to following Christ. He said it so himself, if they are not for us, then they are against us. You are either going to obey or you're going to disobey. You are either going to believe or you are not. You are either going to love your brothers and sisters in Christ or you will not. But you've heard the command, and now you must decide what to do with it. And for those of you wondering, how in the world am I ever going to be able to do this? John has a great word of encouragement for us. Verse 24, it's our final point for the morning. The saved heart and the God who dwells within. Verse 24 says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that He abides in us. Here it is. By the Spirit whom He has given us. The person who knows Jesus keeps His commandments and is able to be certain of that by the inclination of the Holy Spirit who lives within them. If you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you want to know the first thing that happens to you after you're saved? 
the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The prophet Ezekiel, over in Ezekiel chapter 36, says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues, statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The moment you trust in Christ, the spirit comes to live within. And his role? He's the guarantor of your salvation and he's the enabler of your obedience to Christ. He's the heart worker convicting you of sin, reminding you of truth and helping you to obey God. I've heard that it is said that the proof of belief in Christ is a changed life, and I will further say that the changed life is proof of the Holy Spirit. Y'all, this simple truth is evident. Go back to the moment that you first trusted in Christ. Did He change your heart? Did He give you new desires? Did He bring forth a changed heart in you? Did your sin begin to taste nasty or repulsive to you? Did you begin to love the things of God, His Word, spending time with Him, gathering with His people, telling folks about Him? If you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then rest assured God's Spirit lives within you. And the more, perhaps, stunning thing is that God has allowed you to dwell within Him. You are is. You're His child, and nobody can take that away from you. Romans 8, verses 38 and 39 says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So in just a moment, I want to invite you to a time of response. Pastor Kyle, Pastor Aaron, they'll be in the back of the room near the double doors. If you have not trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and would like to do so for the first time, those guys would love to talk with you. They would love to help you navigate those things. But maybe you're there and you desire to walk with Christ in obedience. Maybe you've been a little wayward in your walk with Him. Seek out those guys. Let them counsel you. Come talk to me afterwards. Find a, find a mature believer in this church and talk to them about these things. I would plead with you, I would beg of you to not walk out of this door here before you know where you stand with Christ. So, on the first word of our response song, you have the opportunity to respond. And I pray that you do. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the challenge that your word brings to us, for the way that it sculpts our hearts and our lives, and for the fact that you do not shy away from hard phrases. You've called us to be obedient. 
And so, Lord, help us. Lord, if there be a heart in here who's not trusted in you for salvation, I pray that you would convict them, draw them to yourself now. Lord, if there's a believer in the room who has not been walking in obedience, I pray that you will convict their heart and help them to repent, to turn back. Lord, may we not be people who are focused on ourselves, but Lord, may we be a people who look to love others, who look to love you, and who look to love our fellow believers. These are the things you've called us to. By your spirit, God, by your power, help us to do these things. Lord, I pray that you would have your way with this room over the next few minutes as we respond to you in our hearts during this song. Have your way, O God, for it is perfect and it is good. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.